HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Monday, November 8th, 2021. This show will be airing in a couple of days, and it is our 308th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an award-winning bartender who has flair, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to have showmanship. Yes, let's think like performers and bring style and flair to everything we do, making our act stand out from the rest. How we present ourselves and perform can make a difference creating a new sense of excitement and appreciation for others, and lifting spirits. So let's all embrace our best Hugh Jackman and aim to be the greatest showman or showwoman on earth. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm happy to have my guest joining me. We're going behind the bar today. My guest is Chris Cardone. He is a bartender with over 21 years of experience who is currently bartending at iSodi, which is Rita Sodi's beloved Italian restaurant in New York City. Chris is the 2017 national champion of Diageo World Class, the world's largest global mixology competition, as well as a three-time national finalist. Chris is also a four-time national flair bartending finalist and, and has organized and judged bartending competitions of all styles all over the world since 2004. Without further ado, hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. Thank you very much for having me. Ah, my pleasure. I'm excited to chat and hear all about your career and and what's happening in the in the world of bartending. So I always like to start with my guests and find out how they got into the industry. So do you, you want to take us back a little bit? Like what drew you into hospitality and bartending? Sure, of course. So um, I started tending bar in the year 2000. I was um, a college kid going, living in Long Island and going to school in Pennsylvania. And I was in my break for uh, winter. 
And I decided that I would take a bartending class to go back to school and bartend to make a couple bucks and, you know, pay tuition and the, all of the insane amounts of cost of going to college. And then uh, I loved it so much. I went right after my, my junior year, I went right into the bar uh, during the summer of bet- between my junior and my senior year of college. And uh, I worked at a place called the Roadhouse. And uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but it sounds like the movie was. It was, uh, it was a rough, rough spot. And uh, it, was, it was the best thing. You know, looking back at it, there's so many bartenders today that have never worked in a, in a bar that requires you to learn how to really deal with guests on a um, more than what they want to drink level. So I mean, I was learning how to break up fights and calm people down and cut people off and uh, remember their names and clean out their ashtrays. I mean, it was, this we're talking a long time ago. We're talking about a completely different style of bartending than what most people know today. And it was, like I said, it was the best thing for me because it learned how to teach, uh, teach me how to do all this stuff besides what was going inside the glass. And I've used that ever since to my advantage. And then. Um, you know, from that point on, it, it's just been a kind of a wild ride. I, I opened up a couple bartending schools with a, a partner of mine back in the early 2000s, and we were doing that, and I thought that was going to be my path. Then I ended up realizing that that didn't make me truly happy, so I went back to full-time bartending and worked in restaurants and sports bars and nightclubs and even with catering companies, on-site, off-site, and uh, finally broke into the mixology thing back in the early 2010s. Uh, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet with Julie Reiner, and she gave me an opportunity to work at her one of her places. And you know, since then, it's just been in Manhattan ever since. You know, running programs since uh, 2013. I was at the Beatrice Inn for their grand opening as their head bartender. Then moved on to another great spot, Il Buco Alimentari, for a little while. Then uh, I got stolen from there to run uh, the grand opening of a restaurant called White Street in Tribeca. And six year, a little bit more than six years ago now. I got a, a recommendation to go speak to Rita at Isodi, and that's uh, been my home away from home ever since. Wow, amazing. I mean, that's a lot of experience. And yeah, I was going to ask you, like, who mentorship, who mentored you? And yeah, Julie Reiner's a, a great one. Um, but that's, I mean, all those restaurants you named and 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 the and talking about your the early days of uh, how how. Uh, cocktail or bartending culture was was di- a bit different, but I, I I recall those scenes as well. <laughs> even though I wouldn't say I was behind the bar dealing with them. Right. Um, but so so talk a bit about Isodi because I've I've dined there before. I'm definitely due to come back. Um, it's 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 um, it's a fabulous Italian restaurant, but it's from what I you know my my description of it is it's it's quaint. It's it's low key. I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's the opposite of like a rowdy bar. Oh, for sure. So uh, it's a kind of a fun story how I got in there because a friend of mine who was working there that I've worked with in multiple locations asked me to meet with her. And I sat down with her on a Sunday afternoon before the restaurant was open. And I don't think we talked about work at all. We just kind of, you know, talked about life and, and what I was looking for and what she was looking for in the industry. But we never really spoke about anything about the restaurant itself. I never really asked her any questions. She never really asked me any questions. Uh, and then she just kind of said, hey, listen, like, why don't you come in for, you know, a couple of days to train and see what you think? And she was so confident about it that I was so impressed that I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to give this try. And, and three days later, she asked me, you know, what do you think? And I said, I'm, I'm in, you know, like I, I love her place. Um, she's a, she's, she's one of the, of a rare, a rare kind of person in this business where she really understands 
the business aspect as well as understanding food and, and balance of flavor and, and doesn't get caught up in all of the hype that I think this industry, unfortunately, has really been too involved in. You know, there, there's too much PR, there's too much Instagram, there's too much trying to smoke and mirrors the business instead of understanding the foundation of what people really want when they go out to dinner. And that is just great food, great service, and a great time with their with each other. And that's it. So when you go to Isodi, it's it's not a big show. You know, there's nothing on the walls. There's no, you know, big plating and everybody's got to explain the 855 ingredients in your dish. It's just simple. It's here's your food. It's going to be great. Here's your service. We're going to do our great job. We're not going to get interfere in your conversations. We're going to be kind of like almost shadows where we're in and out where you don't really notice us. And we're just, you know, hopefully going to give you a great dining experience with you and the guests that you're with so that you come back often. But again, it, it's it's a rare thing, I think, these days, the way she runs her business. And I'm, I'm always inspired by her because she's she's always the hardest worker. And I've worked in other spots where the owner of a restaurant or the executive chef of a restaurant didn't bring that attitude to work. They didn't bring that. They didn't come in as the hardest worker. It was very much more of a, I'm going to watch from the behind and I'm not going to be involved. And I'm just going to kind of point my finger and yell and blame and, you know, treat my place as a playground. And she's the exact opposite of that. You know, it's constant training. It's constantly, she's a constant presence and it's really, really exciting to work for her. I've, le- I've learned more than I can imagine over these past six years. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and nothing you're saying is surprising me from what I know about her. And um, it's, it's wonderful to hear you say that. Let me ask you my, my, question from my last guest. On episode 307, I had on Vicki Freeman, who's a partner of the Bowery Group, which includes Vicks, Cookshop, Rosie's, Shuka, and Chouquette, all very uh, market-driven restaurants in New York City, also very beloved. Mm -hmm. Um, So she wants to know a couple of things. First, she said she lives down the block from Isodi and it's one of her favorite restaurants. And she actually wants to go there, she said next week, but it's really this week for her anniversary. So she wants to know how she can get in. And her second question was, um, she's so impressed by the level of knowledge that everyone who works at ISODI has, um, including about spirits. So she wants to know, how do you get your staff to be so educated? And she said she usually sits at the bar. So I assume you've probably met. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure of it. Um, Okay. So to answer the first question, you know, that's another thing I love about ISODI is that that no one is treated differently than than another person in that we there's nobody getting you know tables because they know somebody or because they're a celebrity or be, uh, none of that stuff applies you know i've worked in other spots where if a celebrity comes in and you know it's everything shuts down except for that one table you know they get all the free food they get all the free drinks every server every manager they're just hovering over the table and it's as if the other guests of the restaurant don't matter they don't don't apply and i really love the fact that she's created a culture that everyone is equal and everyone should be treated the same and everyone should be treated as though they are the most important guest so therefore uh all of the reservations are only handled on resi.com. So it's it's an interesting situation because there's only eight tables at Isodi. And so you have to, you know, you have to be quick on resi and you have to get them. Now, uh, having said that, there is a, a bar there with 16 seats. And that's where a lot of our regular guests dine at because it's a walk-in situation. And it kind of takes out the hassle of dealing with resi and trying to get your reservation at the exact time you want. It gives you a much more free opportunity to come by sit down and have a dinner at the bar, you're going to get the same exact experience 
but you're going to get, um, you know, you're going to have that full dinner. You're going to have everything, but you don't have to deal with the, with the hassle of getting a reservation. So that, and, and if it, we are full at the bar, you know, you just put your name in, we text you when the seats are ready. So it's really, uh, I think a much easier and much more approachable way to dining there versus trying to get one of those eight tables throughout the night. It's it's just a very difficult situation. You know, it's, it's, don't get me wrong. It's a great problem that we have, but, um, but at the same time, it's not the only way to dine there. And a lot of people, I think, think that they get fall into that trap that it's the only way I can dine at Isodi is getting a reservation. And that's just not the case. No, well, I remember, I recall like going as a walk-in and sitting at the bar and that's how I got in. And actually, I guess I'm kind of kicking myself to Last last year in the pandemic, when restaurants, you know, like started opening their outdoor spaces, I remember uh, walking down the block and seeing Isodi's um, uh, your your setup and being like, oh, I should go there and eat outside because it looks so cozy and quaint. And there were tables, but I didn't I didn't grab it. But <laughs> I'm glad you guys survived through 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 that period. Yeah, you know, it was it was a challenging for everyone in the industry, and I'm I'm very grateful that we have such a really wonderful following and loyal guests that have come in, whether they were sitting outside in the freezing cold under you know under those heaters, or they were in sitting outside when we first opened in the in last summer, and you know it was kind of cool. It was kind of like you were really felt like you were in Europe with you know just the small little banquet tables and. Um, and, and an umbrella over your table. And it was just kind of, it was, it was a crazy, crazy time. And, you know, we've, we've definitely found more of a semblance of normalcy now with uh, people coming in and dining at the bar and dining at tables. And, you know, thank, get, thank goodness for all of this, that it's really gotten back to that, to that feel of normalcy. But at the same time, like I said, it was, it, we're really, we're all really grateful that we have such loyal guests because we were having regulars on a weekly basis coming in and, and having dinner with us during that time. So it was, it was a little yeah. bit crazy. Now to get back to the other question, uh, right? Far, I was gonna yes. The other yes, question about go ahead. As far as training, um, you know, it's really also another interesting situation about the restaurant, and it's part of the reason I love working there so much is that everyone there. It's a very very small staff, and everyone there is a true professional. There's nobody who's been working in the business for like six months or a year. Um, everyone that's behind the bar or in on the tables or at the door, everyone has a multiple years of experience. And so everyone is kind of, for lack of a better way to say this, just treats the job like an adult would. And so we all demand of each other our best every shift. And so we all work together on understanding spirit knowledge and understanding wine knowledge. And, you know, if there's a new wine on the menu, Rita opens it and lets us taste it so that we all really understand it and we can speak about it. The same goes for spirits, the same goes for cocktails, but it's not, and I've worked in places where it's kind of been over the top where you, they just pour so much info at you so often that I think a lot of servers, a lot of bartenders, they get either A, overwhelmed and don't bother handling it, or it's just a matter of, you know, you can only hold so much information coming at you so fast. And I've had places where they give you, you know, a sheet at lineup every day with a page worth of information. And it's like, come on, I can't, there's no possible way to maintain all of that information. So I really like that we do it on a much more casual, much more, um, realistic expectation for knowledge. And so I think everybody there is really, again, dialed in and make sure that they know what they need to know because everybody wants to make sure that we all carry that culture that she has created over the past 13 years, that we all do a really good job and and keep doing that. Because at this point, we're the extension of Rita. So she really wants to make sure that we do the same job that she would 
expect anyone to do in that restaurant. So again, it's a, it's a responsibility that we all gladly accept and, and all hope that we do our best every time. Yeah, wonderful. So let's talk a bit about Diageo and the world-class competition. Like what, what led you to compete in that? I mean, you, you won the national championship in 2017. Like what was, like, yeah, what, what led you to compete? And then what was the whole process like and your experience um, as, as, as a co- competitor? So I started competing in 2014. I was, uh, at the time, I was just kind of in the mood to challenge myself. I was finding myself in a little bit of a creativity rut. I was working at a restaurant that didn't really, they didn't, let's just say they didn't really create an environment that felt like you were part of the creativity aspect. You were for more or less just a person on their team to make their drinks and take their orders and leave after work. And I just, I just felt like a little bit of a rut and I felt kind of uninspired. And I said, you know, I said, if I'm going to go for a competition, let me go for the biggest one. And uh, I was really never into bartending competitions. I was into flair competitions, but never cocktail competitions. I didn't really feel that you know, with, with drinks are so relative to the person that who's to say that my drink is better than someone else's drink or, or that per, you know, it's just, it's such a, again, it's such a relative taste thing that people have biases and people have judgments that they, oh, I don't like this type of drink. So I'm going to score low. And so I wanted to go to one that I knew would judge fairly. And it would really give me an opportunity to grow, to learn, and to, again, to go up against the best of the best. And so in 14, I competed in, in world class. And I, it was funny because the regional was in Boston and I thought I had no shot, like no shot of getting anywhere in it. So I went there with almost no practice, no preparation, very, very little work of, of anything. I just kind of wanted to see where I'd stack up. And it was funny because I ended up getting through the regionals and into the nationals, kind of stunning everybody, including judges and friends that were there. Like, oh, how did you do it? And I said, I, I don't know. I just bartended. You know, I just, okay. I just up there with no nerves and I just talked to the judges and I just treated them like they were guests at a bar and I had just had fun with it. And then when I got to the nationals, I found success there too. And I ended up taking fourth overall. And it was, again, it was, it was just one of those things where I just, I was playing with house money. I didn't have any kind of nerves or, or anything like that. And I just went up there and bartended like I had always done. So now the next year in 15, I kind of, I had to eat a little humble pie because I, I went in there with a little bit more of different attitude. There was a little bit of arrogance. There was a little bit of ex- expectation and I didn't put the work into ex- get to finding the success. I just assumed the success would find me like it did the first year. And I ended up not getting through the regional and I took it very, very hard. And I was very disappointed in myself, but I was more or less disappointed in my attitude than anything else. I just, I realized maybe, you know what, maybe I should have put some work into this. So the following year in 16, I really refocused. I started practicing harder. I started creating concepts and drinks. And I really, again, I I kind of reinvented that training to myself. And I ended up getting through the regional, getting into the nationals and losing uh, to Andrew Meltzer, who was the guy who won the year prior to me. And for whatever reason, something just lit up in me that right when they announced his name, I sat down with a friend of mine outside the, uh, the ballroom that they announced the winner. And I didn't, wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. You know, a lot of competitors end up getting into that blaming or finger pointing thing where they say it's not fair. It was rigged. It was, I didn't do any of that. I just said to my friend, I said, next year I'm winning this thing and that's it. Like I'm done. I'm, I'm just, this whole year is about winning. And I, I did, I, I focused on things that I had never focused before. And it was a really, really cool opportunity and a life changing opportunity for me because what happened was I started focusing on the mental aspect 
that I had never, ever, ever focused on before in competing. Whether it was as a kid, as a hockey player, as a flair bartender in my early 20s, I never, ever focused on the mental preparation aspect. I always focused on the technical aspect only. And so I reached out to some guys who had won big competitions and asked for their help. I started reading books on Olympic world medalists and other uh, people who wrote books on mental training and mental fortitude and and uh, and grit and all those kind of things. And I, I kind of refocused my energy instead of what's in the drink into my head. And I started understanding that I had always competed as second best. I had always thought of myself as, well, I won't win, so I don't really need to practice that hard. Or vice versa, in a little subconscious way, what I started thinking was, I can't win, so I won't practice hard, therefore I'll have an out when I don't win, to kind of give myself that excuse, oh, I could have won, but I didn't really try my hardest and that kind of thing. So a little bit of a kind of, sort of a, a cushion for failure. And so I finally realized all those things about myself and I said, okay, this time I'm going to go for it, but in a different way. I started realizing that most athletes don't actually compete to win. They compete to be exceptional for how they practice. They want to be perfect for their skill set. So I started practicing that way and I started thinking about things that way. And I practiced probably harder than I'd ever practiced for any competition combined, all of them together in that one year. And I went up there and all I wanted to do was just create the rounds of world-class, those, those five rounds in the national finals, I just wanted to be perfect for how I practiced. And I said to myself, if everything is executed exactly how I want it, then I don't care if I win or lose. And it was the first time I had ever done that in a competition, that kind of thinking. It was just, just be perfect for what you want to do. And I did. And I, and I went through all the five challenges and I said to myself after each one, okay, that's another one that went exactly how I wanted it. I wouldn't change a thing. And I don't care how I'm judged because I know what I did and I know how I'm, I, that I, I did my best for that day. And when I won, it was interesting because I had another thing I had practiced was mental imaging and under and imagining winning prior to. I found that that was a very, very common thread between professional athletes and Olympic medalists and other even business business leaders is that you imagine what you want and you do it so often that when it happens, you're not actually surprised by it. And so it was funny because the girls that were in charge of world class that year both came up to me and were like, are you okay after I won? Because I wasn't smiling. I was, I was just very like stoic. And I said to them, I said, I'm really happy. I, I just, I, I'm not, I'm not surprised by this. I had already seen it in my head and it's happening exactly how I envisioned it. So it was a really, really cool ride. And it was, like I said, it was a life changing moment because now everything I do, I try to bring that same energy. So even for this podcast, you know, I started thinking about what I wanted to say and, and, and try to envision the podcast before it happened. So I didn't feel nervous. I didn't feel uh, you know, unsure of what I want to say and all those things. But I do that even with work. You know, it's, just, it's just become a lifestyle thing now. It's just so much more mental that I have never been before. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And it's, yeah, it's good advice to, to anyone listening about, you know, getting mentally prepared and, and, and what it takes to, you know, to, it's, it's not just about, it's not about winning or it's not just about winning. It's, uh, it's about the process and what it means to you. And you certainly found that, um, in doing so. So that's really right. cool. Right. What, um, what's your involvement now with Diageo Bar Academy? I know you're on the website as an expert. Uh, so what, 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 what's your role and, and tell us a little bit about what's, what all the different master classes and things that Diageo 
offers because yeah, um, I, I their website. It. I get lost in their website. There's so much content. <laughs> it is. It is a wealth of knowledge on that website. Yeah, it's um, amazing. I, I hate that term expert because. Um, it, again, it goes back to that that thing that you know it, when you start calling yourself an expert is when you stop when you stop working on things. And so, uh, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do is I've tried to maintain a level of of understanding that there is always someone who knows more than you, and there is always someone to reach out to when you have questions. And I think that not just in the bartending world, but in society, I think we've all started to fall into this trap that you have to be an expert and you can't ever make a mistake and you can't ever ask for help and you can't ever say, I don't know. And I think it's a really big, just again, it's just a trap that we all have fallen into thinking that you have to know everything. And I, and I try not to ever feel like that. So there's so many people between flair bartenders and cocktail bartenders and just um, understanding things about life, people that I reach out to for so many different areas of questions, even during the pandemic about how to bottle cocktails and, and how to carbonate cocktails and things that I don't do on a regular basis. I would, you know, text them and say, Hey, you got five minutes. I have some questions I need help with, um, you know, understanding all of that kind of stuff. So the, the bar Academy is, is just an amazing resource for bartenders, or I guess enthusiasts too, where you can learn there's so many, so many opportunities to get better in every so, in single aspect of the industry. And it's like I said, it's, it's, it's a rare thing because there aren't many places for bartenders to go to learn about. It doesn't just have to be about brands and, and flavors. It can be about trends and techniques and high level concepts, rudimentary concepts. It just gives you an overall opportunity to really better yourself in the industry. So I really, really am excited about the Bar Academy. And I've done a few things for them. The one thing I'm very excited about, I'm doing a masterclass on January 11th um, for uh, balance. It's called Balance and Bright, but it's basically understanding how to integrate seasonal low ABV or no ABV cocktails at your bar for the for the winter. And, and so I'm really, really excited about that because the low ABV slash mocktail, non-alcoholic cocktail, whatever you want to call them, has become a really big trend. And I'm excited about it because it it's there's a lot of pressure in the business, whether you're in the industry or out of the industry, to drink. And I like the fact that people are understanding that that pressure is unnecessary and that you don't need to drink to either A, have a good time if you're a guest, or B, to drink if you're in the industry and be successful. For a long, long time before I stopped drinking, I thought that that was a, a mandatory part of it, that if you want to be a great bartender, you also have to be a great drinker. And that was subconsciously kind of driven by so many messages from other bartenders and guests and, and just society in general. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're all as a group, as a society, coming around to that notion that you don't have to drink if you don't want to, to have a great time or to be a great bartender. So I'm very, very excited for that masterclass. Oh, amazing. I'm, I mean, and I didn't, I didn't know you didn't drink. I don't drink either. And so I am very familiar with the space and what it's been like over the years to go out and, and be someone who, who doesn't want alcohol and how it's, it, there's been a shift and, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. We'll talk more, um, later in the industry news, uh, about, about the, what's been happening, change in the industry. Cause it was a good article that came out, but, um, yeah, it's, it's great. You're, pro you're providing a class on that because I'm also finding now it's interesting because uh, uh, now meaning like uh, the past few months, I'm almost, I dine out a lot and to the 
I'm actually to the point where when I look at the cocktail menu, if there isn't a little section on on booze-free, zero-proof, whatever fun name you want to call it, um, uh, drinks, like there's usually now I find like two or three at, at a lot of the restaurants. But when it, it's not there, I'm actually a little disappointed. I'm like, don't you know what's happening in the industry? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... Um- <laughs> It's it's like I said, it's a very very important aspect, and and you know I understand what you're saying about about feeling like you know they should everyone should have that, and I and I also understand the other side of it where you know you have to reprint menus, you have to think about space and all that kind of stuff. But even if you don't print it, to be uh, available to your guests and say when they say, "Oh, I'm not drinking tonight, I'm just gonna have water," to offer them something, or if they ask you, you know, do you offer mocktails? Do you have any 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 drinks? That kind of stuff. You know, to be able to say, "Yes, we do." have that and to be able to create something for them that they're going to enjoy and they're going to feel just as excited about as an alcoholic cocktail is so important. I'm fully with you for sure. Yes. And over the years, and I still do, I've had bartenders make me uh, mocktails just on the fly and, and that is it. It's, and there it's, you know, that's a, that's wonderful. And again, going back to your class that you're, you're teaching this, that, that people will be able to make better ones, you know, in, in over the years, even, but I think, I think the thing with seeing it on the menu, it's almost like, it's like, if I see it on the menu, it's, it's going to drive more sales. I think I I've said this to a couple of people when I've been dining out because like you see it and it's sort of like, Oh, that looks good. I'll get it versus like asking separately. But, um, and yeah, no, it's interesting. It's interesting to see this shift. And um, that's very cool that you have that coming up. Uh, before we take a break, just one other thing I want to ask you about with this flare, flare bartending, because it's not something, I mean, like what's, what is happening with flare bartending? Because I don't think it's, I don't think that's trending now. I don't know if, will that be something that comes back at some point as, as uh, we see more at bars, because I think right now it's kind of more low key bartending. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the cycles that happen in this industry. It's really interesting because um, the bar- flare bartending was the all the rage in the early two thousands. I mean, if you didn't flare bartend, it was like you were missing on the boat. Uh, and then it just kind of—I mean, I saw the writing on the wall as cocktails just started exploding. Flare kind of went the other way. And then flair kind of vanished. And there, you know, there's pockets of the country that still do a lot of flair bartending. But the thing that I found with flair bartending, as it was defined in the early 2000s, was that it was much more available for places where you're on vacation, you're not in a rush, you're here for a show, and you're here to relax. So places like Las Vegas are built for flair bartending, right? People go to Vegas for the shows that they want to see. So it's perfect fit to go to a bar when you're not in a rush, you're on vacation and you'll watch a flair bartender flip around bottles and put on a big show. The problem is, is that that's not real life in an everyday aspect. So in New York, trying to flair bartend is like, you're going to get, you know, people are going to not only give you rude comments, but they're going to give you angry faces and, you know, they're going to be not really thrilled with the fact that they feel like you're kind of showing off. So 
What's been interesting about Flair is that over the past year or so, it's kind of gotten through Instagram, TikTok videos, all that kind of stuff. It's sort of building this weird, like underground cult thing that I've watched it sort of swell. And people are trying to learn how to flare in a more realistic way. So there's always been kind of two flares. There's been exhibition flare, which is again, what you see in cocktail, the movie or in Vegas. And then there's working flare that a lot of bartenders in even in cocktail bars have taken on where things, the way you manipulate your, your jiggers, your bar spoons, the way you pick up your tins, the way you shake your drink, the way you strain your drink. There's a lot of these little, very, very subtle, intricate movements that people in like lay people don't notice, but bartenders will be like, Oh, you know, that was cool. I saw that. And it's, it's, again, it's, there's sort of like very, like very gentle, quiet underswell that's been happening about it. And I think, I think that it's going to continue and eventually it will sort of overtake again because it's again, it's just cyclical, right? You have cocktails are more important than you have entertainments more important than you have cocktails are more important. And I think at some point people are going to say, wait a minute, I want to be, I want to be entertained by the bartender again. And cocktails will sort of die down. And we're already seeing that a little bit, right? That sort of snooty, arrogant mixologist is kind of snubbed at now. We don't, we don't want that anymore. We want the bartender who's much more down to earth. We want to sort of go to those dive bars again. So we're going in that direction where entertainment and fun is being the focus again at the bar. But I don't think we'll ever get back to that, like, you know, bottle juggling, crazy Vegas stuff, except again, except in those pockets that are designed for that purpose. Yeah. Except in Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Including for <laughs> Awesome. Okay, so let's take a little break and uh, we'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience this week. And the final question, the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Are your menus ready for colder weather? Seasonal serves can drive hot profits. Sign up at diageobaracademy.com to join experts live or view past master classes on demand to learn how to create the ultimate seasonal cocktail menu with tips and techniques and how to stay on trend to make your bar more profitable. Also, learn how to create a menu that includes warming, spice-infused drinks, as well as low or no ABV winter cocktails, and how to integrate mindful drink styles into your beverage programs. Whether you are a bartender, owner, or operator, or if you are completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. So why wait? Visit diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free, and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Chris Cardone. He's a bartender with lots of experience. He's currently bartending at Isodi in New York City, and he is the 2017 National Champion of Diageo World Class. So, Chris, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple of things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Are you ready? I'm ready. I won, I won speed round in world class two times. So let's bring it on, Sherry. Give me your best of your best. 
All right, all right, here we go. Uh, eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Uh, eat in at home since the pandemic. Gotcha. Indoor dining or alfresco dining? Indoor. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? <laughs> mocktail. <laughs> we have a whole conversation about people not liking the word mocktail that came up once, but I still <laughs> use it. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, tasting menu or a la carte? Oh, that's tough. Um <sighs> All right, I'll go tasting menu because I think that it offers a more exciting experience if it's executed perfectly. Great. How about small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping, 100%. Stop this (laughs) all-inclusive. Spoken like a true bartender. Okay, how about Cocktail or Coyote Ugly? Talking about the movies. Oh, oh, Cocktail, for sure. I mean, it's a, such a classic. I mean, whenever and whenever you talk about, or whenever at least I think of flair bartending, I immediately go to Tom Cruise. Sure. You, know, you know, it's funny because the movie is kind of a joke. You know, a lot of people make comments yeah. about it. But if you watch that movie and you've bartended for more than like, a, you know, a couple of years, that movie is scary accurate about actually how that world works. There's a really amazing scene. I don't, I know this is speed round, but there's a really amazing scene where Tom Cruise and Elizabeth Chu are talking about his dreams and becoming a millionaire and finding his thing. And he describes bartending and how you get hooked into it. I mean, it's beautiful and it's so scary. Very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a fabulous movie. I mean, it's it's a cheesy, fabulous movie, but kind of love it. Um, and now I'm gonna look for that scene next time it, next time it comes on TV. It's probably gonna be on like this weekend. Yeah, or somewhere. <laughs> okay, I got three more. This is this is might be the toughest one. Via Corota, Bouvet, or Pesolino. Oh, I see how you still want you left one out. Um Oh, should I put Isodi in there? Yeah, of course. So Isodi for sure. Um, I, was giving, I was giving the other, well, well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was thinking uh, uh, if you're not eating at Isodi. I really do. I really do love them all. Um, it's really hard for me to pick one, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think they all have different aspects to be charming. I think there's some really, really beautiful parts about all of them. And I think they execute what they do the best. But I will say there's something about Bouvet at brunch that is like magical. And I really, truly love that experience. Everything about that experience at brunch for Bouvet I, I, every time I've left, I've kind of like had a smile on my face that is just like, wow, that was really good. So I'll pick that just because I have to. But I think, like I said, I have so much respect for all three spots because they do what they do really well. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I love, I love brunch at Bouvet. And, and yeah, I don't know. This is that it's a tough one. And these are, these are, uh, Rita's part with her partner, Jody Williams restaurants for people who might not be familiar and they're all down in the village and they're all fabulous. Okay, two more. I got cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Oh, Manhattan for sure. Terrific. That's the game. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> you win. You win. So um, there, 
the prize is though, I, my prize is kind of lame right here. It's to talk some industry news. Okay. <laughs> so, but interestingly enough, this week there was an article in Business Insider, and the title is "Well, Wellness-Focused, Sober-Curious Consumers Are Driving Interest in Booze-Free Cocktails, a Relative Newcomer to the 180 Billion Beverage Industry." This was by Alana Oktar. So it's what we've been what we've been talking about on the show. It's and this is was saying non-alcoholic non-alcoholic beverage sales increased 33 percent to. 331 million this last year, and analysts are saying that non-alcoholic spirits will continue to grow in 2022. Sober curious young people and wellness-minded drinkers are contributing to the non-alcoholic drink movement. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, let's talk talk a little bit more about what you're seeing with the industry, and and because, um, I, I mean, I hate to say it's a trend, especially as someone who hasn't drank alcohol in a long time, because to me, it's not a trend. It's just a lifestyle. But it is, it is, I guess, trending. Do we think this is here to last? And 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 I mean, I my guess is yes. Um, I mean, yes and no. I think uh, I think that there are trends that that do take place in our society, right? So you think about um, the the just the trend of of society when they look at things that were very expensive that they used to buy. And then there was a very big, quick trend of just buying cheap, inexpensive things. And then that got pushed back into quality. And so you have, there's always ebbs and flows, right? So the industry for alcohol will be the same thing. There will be times where cocktails are more popular and then wine is more popular. There'll be times where people drink heavier and then that over 10, 15 years has an effect on the next generation who doesn't drink as heavy. So there will always be ebbs and flows in the trends. What I don't think is a trend is that I think as a society and as an industry, there's more of an acceptance on people who don't drink. Now, granted, there will always be people who will push back on that, just like everything else. You know, as society grows and matures, I don't know if mature is the right word, but it feels like matures, you know, when you feel like you got to pressure somebody to drink or not. Um, but as society becomes more acceptable, we'll say, about other people's opinions and other people's cha- choices, um, there will be, there's always growth. There's always a little bit of pushback from people who aren't willing to change or don't want to change or afraid of change. But I don't think that's a trend. I don't think that we'll ever get back to a place where the overwhelming majority feels that they have to drink, um, and that they are kind of forced into drinking or they're not cool if they don't drink. I think those days luckily are over, but I do think that there will be you know, there will be reactions and ebbs and flows to it. I think right now we're in a, we're watching uh, a younger generation. You know, I, I, I hate to say, generalize and call it millennials, but a younger generation doesn't drink as much as an older generation does. Uh, I see that certainly during service on a nightly basis. And I think, again, I, understanding that it's it's just what's happening in their in their lives, how they choose to go out and enjoy themselves, to be accepting of it and to offer them alternative options like non-alcoholic cocktails, or just to be accepting that they're just going to have water tonight and not snub them, treat them any different or anything like that, is I think that is something that's going to stay. And then as far as non-alcoholic 
uh, in- ingredients like ingredients like Seedlip and other other non-alcoholic distilled spirits, uh, offering lots of different tonics and club sodas and flavored non-alcoholic drinks and all that stuff. I think that is an industry that's going to continue to grow because, again, it does give people options. And it also, to be quite frank, it doesn't have to necessarily only be non-alcoholic options. So, for example, I always get excited when I see a new ingredient from Fever Tree or a new ingredient from, like, let's say, the Pellegrino sodas. I get excited because I'm like, oh, what can I use that for both? You know, I use it as a non-alcoholic option, but I also figure out a way to use it in a cocktail, too, and use it for, you know, two birds with one stone. So I, I, I applaud and I'm very excited about all the different flavors of ingredients that are coming out that are not spirit-based. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And yeah, Seedlip was, they talked about in this article and Diageo acquired Seedlip um, several years ago. Um, and definitely, I, I, I stopped by the other day, uh, there's there's a, a store in New York, there's a couple of them, but it, it's called I say Boysen or Busan, um, and it's a non-alcoholic, uh, I guess, liquor store. Uh, and it's it, I, it was like a candy store for someone who doesn't drink. I was very impressed with the amount of products they had and the layout and their knowledge about um, everything that was offered. And and I also work with Curious Elixirs, which is a non-alcoholic craft cocktail, one of the first pioneers in in the space. And and it's been amazing to see um, their the, their success and just the 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 continued interest in people excited about trying non-alcoholic spirits. So I think I agree with you. I think we are going to start seeing more, and it is exciting when when new products come come out. So um, we can stay tuned for that. And and yeah. Um, so uh, that was my industry news, and then for my solo dining experience this week, here's the rundown. It's at Kesti Pizza and Vino. The location, 66 Gold Street off of Fulton Street in downtown Manhattan. The concept is real Neapolitan pizza. The chef and owner is Roberto Caporicio. She always practices ahead. I look at it, staring at it. I know Roberto, but um, I'm just going to say Chef Nona Roberto. Why did I go? Well, I'm a fan of Kesti and Roberto, and he invited me to try some new dishes on their menu. So I went this weekend. My experience, um, I was warmly greeted by his team. I said hello to him and sat at a table near the kitchen. And um, this, this, you know, usually my solo dining experiences, I'm just going anonymously. Um, no one, no one knows I'm, I'm there, but this, this was one that I was invited in and I, I enjoyed it. And I, I felt I wanted to, to talk about it because um, I'll tell you what I got. Um, the reason he invited me in was it, he had all these new menu items, most of them gluten-free, which uh amazingly, he said that 40% of this pizza now at the restaurant, people he say 40% of the orders are for gluten-free pizza, which he's offering. So um, uh, actually, I didn't, I, I had my pizza, I had that easy. I didn't try one of the gluten-free ones. I did have a um, calzone that he was doing and I had some Italian traditional meatballs, the pulpette, and I had a basil cream lasagna with homemade basil and uh, creme de in Sierra La Fignolina, I'm saying that correctly. Those were both gluten-free. Um, and then the pizza I got was this Sabrina pizza, which is, which was with truffle cream base, homemade four cheeses, basil, 
extra virgin olive oil, imported salami, and fresh shaved truffles on top from Urbani. Um, and then I also got to try the tiramisu, which was gluten-free. And um, I got an espresso and some sparkling water. And he, and then he sent me home with a frozen pizza. So it was like crazy. I had this amazing experience. Um, my favorites, my take, I'd say the meatball with uh, the red sauce was outstanding. I really liked the lasagna and 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 the pizza was with the truffles. I mean, you can't go wrong when someone's like shaving fresh truffles on top of your pizza. So it was really fabulous. Uh, the ambiance. So there's a few eating areas. This is uh, their location downtown and it has uh, some warm wood tones, exposed brick. It's very unpretentious. And there's a separate room where he does pizza classes. And there's also outdoor dining. Perfect for dinner with friends, family, or date night. I saw all of that happening around me. Interesting tidbit. So Kesty is now offering their frozen pizzas for nationwide shipping. And just FYI, they closed their location on Bleecker Street, which was the original one. And Roberto is no longer involved with Don Antonio. So this is his only spot. And Kesty means this is it. And Roberto serves as the U.S. president of Italy's Association of Neapolitan Pizzioli. So he's the real deal. Personal fun fact, I met Roberto a few years ago when I was doing PR for the opening of Sorbillo on Bowery, which was very respected, famous pizziolo Gino Sorbillo brought his pizza to New York. That's when we met. And the cost of this meal, it was comped. Uh, I was a guest, so I don't, I didn't get a bill. I left a nice tip. Um, I'm guessing it was probably about like $75, $80 worth of food, just FYI. Uh, would I go back? Yes. And their website is kestepizzeria.com and the Instagram is kestepizza. That's K-E-S-T-E. Thanks so much to Roberto and his team for having me in. Grazie mille. So there you go. Have you been there before, Chris? Keste? No, I haven't. Um, sounds great, actually. That sounds like a really nice experience. I was very surprised when you said 40% of their sales is gluten-free pizza. That That's a very high number. That's very surprising. Um, I get yeah. all I get all excited about stuff like that because... Um, I have a, a personal connection to something like that. My daughter has a severe nut allergy and uh, it's so nice over the past, she's 11 now. And over the past 11 years, what I've seen as far as change in both restaurants, but also just food packaging and being understanding that food allergies and insensitivities is a real thing. And it's not something that people joke about or just kind of brush off. And it's been really, really nice. I remember when she was very young, we went to a restaurant and uh, asked if the you know the, the ingredients were safe for her, and the, the server was like, "Yeah, I think so," and kind of walked away. And now it's taken so seriously. So when you said forty percent, I was like, "Wow, that's it's amazing how much of a uh, you know just between gluten and nut allergies and other food intolerances and things like that has become such an important aspect in training and offering and service." So I'm I was very surprised. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I mean, when he he invited me in, I didn't. He said he had new items in the menu, and I didn't know that he was. I was going to be trying all these gluten free uh, dishes, and I I'm I'm okay with gluten, but I'm happy to not eat gluten too. And and I don't think. I, I mean, it's I, I I think he's yeah. It's pretty cool that he is focused on this, and I think it would be a great place for you to take your daughter. So. <laughs> Um, but, but, but that quick question with, with Isodi, do you have gluten-free pastas? 
We don't have gluten-free pasta, but we have a lot of gluten-free options. So the, the entire secondi menu, the entire protein menu is all mm -hmm. gluten-free. And the appetizers, every one of them can be gluten-free. Some of them, like a tartare, comes with some toast, but obviously that can either be you know omitted from the, the dish or just put on another plate. So there's tons of options. We actually had a lot of gluten-free guests who uh, come in and just get secondis and things like that and really enjoy it. Fabulous. Well, good to know. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Lori Wooliver. She is a writer and editor. She's the former lieutenant to the late author, TV host, and producer Anthony Bourdain. Lori has written several books, including Appetites and World Travel and A Reverend Guide, which she co-wrote with Anthony Bourdain. And her new book out is Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography. Um, I'm I've known Lori for a while. I'm looking forward to speaking with her, and uh, I would love to for you to ask her a question, Chris. So sure. Uh, like. Let's see. I, I mean, I'm always interested uh, in understanding the intention of a human being, right? So what I think I'd love to understand is her interpretation of what Anthony was, his intention really was with all of his shows and all of his information that he gave all of us. You know, he he seemed in his shows to be very authentic, really interested, and really uh, involved in so many projects, so many different cultures and styles, and all that stuff. So, I'd love to see what her interpretation was of his sort of let's see, let's use the Simon Sinek concept of his why, right? What what was he what was he trying to accomplish? What was what was his heart? What was his heart telling him to do versus just you know? There's so many people who just go out and do their thing and they don't really have an intention. They just kind of fall into a trap of just doing their job and that's kind of it. He didn't seem like that. So I'd love her interpretation on what his intention of, of what he was trying to do, what that really was for him, what his drive was. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's a great question. It's, um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to talking with her. I think it's, it might be a, a little bit of a heavier show, but, um, it's, she's worked with him for a long time. So, um, sure. yeah, so that will be next, my next one. Stay tuned for that. I will ask her and, um, that's this show. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, I look forward to meeting you in person and I have to come down and, and get a seat at the bar, uh, at yeah. Isodi. So you can see, maybe you'll do a little flair bartending back there for me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> quietly, quietly. <laughs> <laughs> little flip behind the back. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, but the, congratulations on all your success and everything you're doing. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Again, thank you so much for having me and, and giving me the opportunity to uh, discuss this stuff with you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. My guest today has been Chris Cardone. He's a bartender with over 21 years of experience. He's currently working at Isodi in New York City, and he is the 2017 national champion of Diageo World Class. You can find him, um, websites, esodinyc.com. That's an I-S-O-D-I-N-Y-C.com. You can also go to diageobaracademy.com. Check it out. There's so much content on there. It's an amazing resource. Um, it's really fabulous. And on social media at diageobarac, at Chris Cardone. But is I have to ask you this, Chris. Your Instagram handle, the your O is a zero? Yes, that's right. 
Because I'm okay. That's that's what it looks like on Instagram. So Chris Cardone with an a zero is the O. Um, and you can also follow Rita Rita Sodi. Um, you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Armen, and thanks again to Chris, and thanks to Laurel. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.